I think everyone wants to think that they're Lady Mary or wants to think that they're Sybil, but we're all really Edith and we just need to accept it. We cringe watch, then getting it poppin'. We cringe watch, then getting it poppin'. We cringe watch, then getting it poppin'. We cringe watch it, then getting it poppin'. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, a podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. This episode, we talked to Brittany Luce and asked, what happens when people date outside their class? So before we get into our binges and cringes, I just want to give a little plug for our Cringe Watchers social media accounts. We are live on Instagram and Twitter, and we are spitting that hot, cringeworthy fire. You do not want to miss out. This is a great way to keep in touch with us and know about new episode drops. Layla, this week, are you binging or cringing? I am binging. I have binged a lot of TV over the holiday season because I got coronavirus and could not leave my house for a good 14 days. And so I really dug through the platforms. And I have to say, I have been binging season two of Nora from Queens. Nora from Queens is Nora Lum, also known as Aquafina. I know most people have heard of Aquafina because of the film Crazy Rich Asians. I also know for that film in particular, but just in her persona in general, she's had sparked a big debate about whether or not she uses a black scent and is an appropriator of language that doesn't represent her upbringing in Queens. I have not had that issue in this show. And I'm not going to dive into that debate right now. But I will say that it is, for me and my family, a very charming look into an Asian American family in Queens, and a young person just trying to get on her feet and get that first meaningful, passionate project or job that gets you out of the house. It's about uh, a young woman who lives at home with her widowed father and her grandmother. And she, in season two, also is bunking up with her cousin, played by Bowen Yang of uh, Saturday Night Live fame. And I will just say that the show is incredibly artistic. It has great animation between segments. I'd love to find out who does the animation. It has taken some supernatural bends on this episode and is very pro-pot in a way that I totally appreciate. So I recommend checking it out. Oh, yeah. Thank you for that. And you are at the forefront of attacking cancel culture. You're modeling a new way forward for us all. So I think the left is very proud. The left needs you. Amazing. The hill I'll die on. Yeah. How about you, Lori? Are you binging or cringing? I'm also going to do a binge this week, Layla, only because the world is cringe. Everything is cringe. I don't have anything new to say about how bad things are. I'm so sorry you got coronavirus. I know so many people who have coronavirus and there is no end in sight and state failure is ongoing. My friends with children, I'm thinking of you. My disabled folks, I'm thinking of you. So sorry that this time is just so, so fucked up and challenging. So I'm binging. (laughs) In the face of cringe, we binge. And I have just been delighted by the newest season of Queer Eye. These folks just keep the tears coming. They always rise to the moment. They actually have the new season set in in and around Austin, Texas, and they had to pivot mid-season in order to account for coronavirus. And I've been really impressed with how they did that. Also want to give a special shout out to the second episode of this new season. And without giving too much away, I'll just say that um, they support uh 
female athlete who is a very special person. And that was my favorite episode of the season so far. And I just am always refreshed by the emotional honesty that they bring to what is otherwise like a pretty traditional and somewhat oppressive TV format. It's old school, but they make it new again. Like they've taken the makeover show and made it actually relevant and almost spiritual for like a new audience. And I just... I'm grateful for them. I totally agree, especially with the endorsement of episode two as being life-changing. And I think, you know, this week we are also talking about an unchanging old-timey world. Queer Eye took place in Texas, but uh, we're talking about jolly old England and the show Downton Abbey, which is kind of digging one uh, out of the vaults, but... uh, It's a show that first aired in 2010 in the UK and follows the world of a wealthy English estate run by an earl and follows the lives of his servants and his daughters uh, upstairs and downstairs. It's had six seasons, five Christmas specials, a first film, another film coming out now. And for this episode, we watched season one, episode six, which is the episode that covers uh, some women's rights to vote rallies, as well as the ongoing season theme of whether or not a woman can own a house. That's right. And we love to get topic ideas from all over the place. And this one, we actually got the topic idea from seeing a tweet from our guest herself. And she is potentially a genius for pulling this one off the proverbial shelves at the time that she did. Because aside from the prequel that you mentioned, which is going to be coming out and actually based in the US, there is so much going on in real life these days to connect to this show again. Um, and there's a reason it was a hit. You know, it's we talk about how the storylines are really compelling in this episode, but it's really good. And it connects to the fact that, hey, the British monarchy is continuing to exist, but we're also starting to see cracks in that facade. Even this week, Prince Andrew has been stripped of his title because of ongoing allegations around his sexual abuse of young girls in relation to Jeffrey Epstein, Um, Harry and Meghan being the tiniest bit vocal about the most basic forms of racism is apparently proving to be an existential threat to the whole royal shebang. Um, So we do like to think of the kind of strict class divide that's portrayed in Downton Abbey, i.e. between servants and landowners as somewhat specific to a time and a place and, you know, specifically, um, you know, the, the 1800s or the 1900s in the UK, but actually what we found with recording this episode is that there's so much to draw on that applies today. And of course, we know that the US has a massive inequality problem. And as Layla mentioned, the episode that we watched specifically covers things that are relevant today, like voter rights and the politics of home ownership. We found the perfect person to dig into all of today's modern politics and all of the soapy drama of Downton Abbey, our friend Brittany Luce, of whom we are also super fans. She is the co-creator with her friend Eric Eddings of the podcast for Colored Nerds, one of the first podcasts that uh, Lori and I uh, bonded over when we discovered our mutual love of the format because they are an incredible pairing. They developed their show independently and then later had a show uh, that they produced for Gimlet Media called the nod gimlet's now owned by spotify and you may have heard of Brittany and eric not because you listen to their programs but because you have read about the controversy and implosion at gimlet over allegations of harassment and racial discrimination uh, around which Brittany and eric have been both outspoken at the forefront pro-union pro-people of color pro-independent 
producers and creators. Uh, and I will say that one of the things that I'm binging that I didn't mention up top is the reboot of their original independently owned show for Colored Nerds, which you can find anywhere podcasts are found. And I highly recommend tuning back in. They are back. They own their name. And it's very exciting to hear what they are producing. It's so true. And so in a lot of ways, there's kind of that meta element to this whole show and this whole interview because Brittany and her co-host Eric are carrying a torch for the entire podcasting industry in a way. And, you know, we're very new to this industry and um, really very much so starting out. Um, but, but they're gaining a lot of deserved attention for their show and the ways in which they're creating their show. Because not only did they speak out about discrimination, they've also been really vocal about the deeply problematic monetization practices within podcasting. And so we will include some links in the show notes pointing to some of the statements that they've made, but suffice to say, they've really become a symbol of who has been left out and or screwed over in podcasting, the cost of this, and what the future could look like if those people are really not only included, but embraced and centered in this very quickly growing medium. And if I do say so myself, they look fresh as hell in their recent New York Times profile. So we'll also include a link to that in the show notes. So with that all being said, we are so excited that we can bring you this interview with Brittany today, and we do hope that you enjoy. If it's okay with you, Brittany, we would love to just jump into this topic. We're so grateful and honored that you are joining us today and welcome to Cringe Watchers. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I'm really excited. Amazing. We're so excited too. And I have to say these days, I don't see a lot of good things happening from Twitter. But this whole interaction <laughs> actually did start with Twitter. And you sent a tweet that started it all last month. You tweeted, my fiance and I have just started Downton Abbey this week. And baby, I'm projecting the voice. The sadness I feel realizing a decade too late that my calling in life was to host a Downton Abbey recap podcast. And we saw that and we were like, you know what? Bet. We, we've got the podcast for you. We also <laughs> love to um, watch and discuss content on our podcast. And this show, even though it's like an old show, quote unquote, in the sense that it came out over 10 years ago, the franchise keeps expanding and they're, they're coming out with this new movie in March. So I'm just curious, like with so much content out there these days and, you know, so much new shows, it feels like coming out all the time. Why Downton Abbey? Why now? Why did you decide to start watching this? And like, where did this tweet come from for you? Well, we we got into it. I mean, you know, it's as simple as like my fiance went to go visit his parents for Thanksgiving and he was just watching Downton Abbey with his mom. She was wrapping up the series. He watched, I think, a couple of the very last episodes of the entire series with her. And he texted me and he's like, oh, my God, when I get back, we got to watch this Downton Abbey show. It is, in all caps, juicy. So I was like, oh, shit, okay. <laughs> so I was like, all right, juicy. That sounds good to me. And I had, I had actually tried to watch Downton Abbey before because it's like, 10 or 11 or 12 years old at this point. I tried to watch it a couple times before and I just couldn't get into it. It wasn't necessarily like the setting because I had seen like Gosford Park, you know, the whole upstairs, downstairs thing. And like I 
have no problem whatsoever with a period drama, like a chase period drama. I'm super into that. Although I didn't love Bridgerton, but that's a different story. I was just like, all right, let's give it a try. Like, I think we had also kind of like, we were starting to run out of things. I think we might, like, we were starting to run out of some things and we needed something to do. I was like, all right, let's give it a try. We watched the first episode. Like I had attempted to watch it in the past and I was like, whatever. But like, there is so much pure soap opera drama. Will they or won't they? Like, unearthing of devastating secrets, double crossing, class tensions, and like marriage plots. Like I was super, we were just 100% sold. It's really like a really, really, really well done soap opera. And I love like all variations of soap operas. So I was totally in. It's true. There are so many characters. I think what one of the things that rewatching season one to have this conversation reminded me of is how well they bounce from upstairs to downstairs. And, mm-hmm. and even on the stairs, you get the crossing of, of, <laughs> of the classes. <laughs> they really introduce you to an enormous number of people in, in the pilot. Before we get too far into it, I do want to note that not one of those people is black. It's an island. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's not that no, show. No, it's not that show. <laughs> it takes until season four. Where uh, there's a, a very uh, unrealistic uh, plot line where somebody meets a jazz singer and they start hanging out. I consider season one, season two, and the Christmas special canon. And in that time period, interesting, uh, they they really have very little interaction with anyone who's unlike them, which I think maybe is evidenced by the by the fact that. Uh, Mr. Pamuk, who we can talk more about as a Turk, mm. is the most ethnic thing they, they come across. Oh, Pamuk. <laughs> <laughs> That's a question I have for the two of you. Uh, where are all the Black people? Yeah. And and Brittany, you raised Bridgerton, which we've covered in a, a previous episode. And like for me, these two shows are like two different opposite ends of the spectrum because Bridgerton is like full of Black people. It's like famously diverse, like also a period piece set in London. It's a century earlier, but it's just all about just random diversity. This show is just like, nah, we're not going <laughs> to make it unrealistic. Personally, I prefer the more realistic Me white too. version in the sense it doesn't try to gloss over anything like Black people were not in this world. I'm watching the show for the story that they're portraying. I have plenty of other shows. I mean, of course, there could always be more shows with black people in them. But there are a lot of other shows that I watch and I enjoy that I don't like when they just randomly put a white person in. There's a reason why Potomac is the better Real Housewives franchise than Atlanta. I said it because they, at that point, I think that Bravo had realized that you could just have a season of black women and you didn't need to put a token white woman in there. I don't like it in either direction to just have random characters who don't belong because to me I don't like being pandered to I don't like being patronized when I'm watching like shows that just put in random people for diversity to I guess try to make me more comfortable as a black viewer but I also don't like when I'm watching a black show or I'm watching a show that's supposed to be taking place in a specific setting and they shoehorn it to like bring in Marissa Tomei you know what I mean (laughs) not Marissa I loved her on um, a different world and there, I went to an HBC. There is always a random white girl, a couple. Yeah. But come on. It can be done well, but it often is not. And I think you're right. There is something to like a fully black cast that creates a, a new magic that can be very easily interrupted. It feels precarious yeah. when we get that. Yeah, I thought it was interesting when Bridgerton came out that a lot of people were posting articles about the the secret black ancestry of the royal family. And I was like, yeah, but that I don't think that was the point they were trying to make. They were setting up a full <laughs> world, a full rainbow 
coalition of royalty that never existed. Mm-hmm. Shonda was like, let's just get these black actors paid and keep it moving. It wasn't, I don't think, beyond that political. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I Yeah. And it was like, it made me feel weird watching it because I was just like finding myself trying to suspend my disbelief while watching a period piece. And you always have to like suspend your disbelief with these pl- with these plots. But the I think that the fully integrated society <laughs> was a lot for me in like Regency era England. It was just, it was a bridge too far, a Bridgerton too far. And one of the things Layla and I were talking about in researching for this show is like historically there were more cross class marriages and specifically historically it was more common for women to like marry up. And that's becoming less common for all these different reasons. Like overall, socially, the distinction between classes is cl- becoming clearer, as you're saying. Um, like the the gap is widening, and people tend to like marry closer to their classes than ever before. But also, it's like women are more educated. So if before you had your secretary ma- marrying the boss, and the secretary was a woman, and the boss was a man, in this totally like heteronormative world that we're creating here, like now your boss might also be a woman and the secretary or the nurse might be a man and they don't need each other in that same kind of dynamic and relationship anymore. One of the surprising plot points within Downton Abbey is that Downton Abbey, despite having the name and the stature, is financed by the new American money from the mom. Mm -hmm. So it's it's Lady Cora's money or whatever, Countess, whatever she's called, the mom, Elizabeth McGovern's character. (laughs) She's got the money. When we reached out to you and said, what are some topics we could talk about? And we all uh, latched onto class I in my mind was thinking mainly about Lady Sybil and the chauffeur and then in rewatching the show was mm. thinking oh you know the parents starting with the parents there's oh, yeah. there's an interesting dynamic there where does gender trump money and does a, a title trump cash uh, for the Crawleys I feel like money trumps everything <laughs> On some level, (laughs) on some level, it's very interesting because they like act like that's such an American way. Like in later, I've only watched through like part of season three, um, but I know that Shirley MacLaine plays uh, Cora's mother, Cora, um, who's like like basically the lady of the house. She's married to uh, Robert, who's like the boss, like that guy. I think I don't know if they call him Lord Crawley or whatever, but Earl. He's an Earl. Earl. That's right. That's right. He's an Earl. You have Cora, who's American and frequently the only American person in her home. And like whenever her culture is brought up, it's always in a derogatory way. But like the sort of um, American like free market capitalism that allowed, I would probably guess, for some of the money that uh, or, or a lot of the money that Cora's family had to like keep the the Crawley family afloat, you know, when she married Robert. Like it's very interesting. They They don't like the American culture, but they love that American money. And not just the fact that they like used that to keep their family line going. But like, it seems that in America we have, or at least back then also had different methods for inheriting wealth than the British do um, that made it probably a lot easier and more direct for someone like Cora to be able to marry someone like Robert um, and keep that money within their family and sort of keep all of Downton like going. So it's like they they hate American culture, but they love American money and the methods that that make it easier, I think, to keep your money if you, of course, were like a white rich person at that time. It's so true. Primogeniture is a real mindfuck. And 
I would be cringing very hard when the Earl and Count would be like getting into bed together and they're like exchanging cute pleasantries and being like, oh, darling, I'm so happy I married you. And then they'd be like, there's just this little, (laughs) oh, this silly matter of my entire wealth. Oh, you're just going to give it away. Oh, good night. I was just like, what's, I don't, like fight for your money, homie. Like I I was just disturbed by that. Like, yeah, marry an American, keep it in the family. Um, (laughs) But like the other couple that, actually the couple that I was thinking of when um, we thought about like class and romance in this show is Mary and Matthew. Mm. Um, and we haven't even talked about the Pamuk situation. I know people are coming on here just to hear our Pamuk breakdown. So we need to give <laughs> Pamuk his due. But like one thing that really struck me is, of course, we don't have to summarize it for you. You saw the Pamuk shit go down. If you're listening to this, you know all about Pamuk. But what I thought was interesting is Mary goes to Matthew and she's agonizing about this whole situation with Pamuk and she's considering telling Matthew because if she doesn't, she would have trapped him in a lie. And I feel like today there's kind of more of a progressive strain that says, you know, our partners don't need to know everything about our past. You know, what's what's past is past. And if you're a progressive feminist woman, you wouldn't go like disclosing your body count, for example. Not that I believe in that. But here, <laughs> this is actually more of like a practical matter. Like it's less about her heart and, you know, disclosing this this experience that she had with an ex-lover and it's more Mm. about no practically like you're getting into this thinking that there's going to be this exchange of wealth and status and you think you know everything but like almost like the deal isn't fair or sound if I don't give you this other piece of information which just happens to be that like I slept with Pamuk. Right. She's damaged goods. She wants to confess to being damaged. Yeah. But it, it feels less emotional. It, it seems to be coming from like a very rational deal oriented place. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's not even excited when she goes up to talk to her mom, like at her bedside. She's just been proposed to. She doesn't even seem fully shocked. Like, you know what I mean? She's just reporting it like it's the evening news. And it seems less that she's like exhilarated than her mind is kind of buzzing with all of the things that she has to figure out. Chief among them, like telling Matthew that, you know, she was used before the sell by date. (laughs) One of the interesting things about rewatching season one is trying to figure out the timeline. Because it all kicks off when the Titanic sinks and the long lost relatives, which they imply she had been pushed in front of also. Like there was an implication that she wanted that whoever the heir is, she they want her to marry to keep this house in in the family. So it all kicks off with the Titanic. And then the end of season one is, you know, the assassination of Ferdinand that we all learned about in elementary school that kicks off World War One. That's only a two year time period. And at the beginning of this episode, because Sybil's at um, some sort of women's suffrage rally, they flash May 1916 on the screen. What I didn't think about very hard before, but in rewatching this episode, episode six, is she's known Matthew for two full years at this point. Whereas if you watch, if you binge season one, it's hard to tell that that much time has passed. Yeah. And it's interesting because when, when they hang out, uh, when, he, when he comes by the house and they're talking on the bench and she's sort of happy to see him and he says, you know, if we if you like arguing, we should spend more time together. And there's just a flicker of possible emotion from her. She's very 
stone-faced. I now realize, oh, they've known each other for two years. This whole banter and her being such a raging bitch when they first meet has faded. <laughs> Damn. They've gotten to know each other. I kind of liked rewatching it and realizing that because despite all of the transaction, I did think just from a soap opera consumer perspective, mm-hmm. I thought they did a good job of showing their comfort with each other it still it did feel like a love match i feel that like the scene when they're sitting together like eating and sort of talking about you know all the excitement from that day with uh sybil and everything like that i think when they're talking to each other i agree with you layla that there was definitely a spark there and lady mary is cold me and my fiance we struggle with lady mary i'm like she's not the moment to me edith has grown on me over time again like i said only the middle of season three so i don't know Sybil became my favorite, but also like I think Sybil like she did she disappears she comes back she's not there consistently, um, but Edith is so I think everyone wants to think that they're Lady Mary or wants to think that they're Sybil, but we're all really Edith and we just need to accept it. But um, <laughs> Mary's so cold; it's like interesting even in that scene to note that they're sitting very close to each other, yeah. not just for the time, but also for Mary as a person does not like anybody in her space. It's true. I totally agree. And that was one of the reasons that the Pamuk scene really threw me off. And to this day, I actually can't tell what was the intent of that scene. And did the writers intend for that sexual encounter that Miriam, Mr. Pamuk had to be viewed as consensual? Or does that word even apply? Because, you know, she is portrayed as so snobby, so standoffish, and even like, explicitly racist when she first shares her, you know, impressions of what Pamuk would be, which of course he upends. Um, but when he visits her, like she doesn't have the tools or the language to like handle his advances, or maybe she wants them and she just has to pretend to uh, be putting him out. It's really, it was unclear to me. Do you, either of you have thoughts on that? I felt the same way where I was watching it. I was paying so much attention to like how she was registering like pleasure or whether or not she was giving consent because sometimes I think especially in older programming like someone will go from like no I don't want to do this to like I'm having the time of my life I'm in ecstasy um, (laughs) without any (laughs) gradient without any discussion or communication Um, I felt like they kind of were trying to show that she was into it but it it wasn't made 100% explicit which you know to your point Lori like maybe back then that wasn't a part of the social script I don't know but um yeah I was wondering that too and even if she was enjoying it like I have something I felt they didn't touch on on the show was like let's say she was really enjoying it this is her first time having sex and I'm not gonna lie Mr. Pamuk hot guy yeah he can get it he's the hottest guy on the show to be honest I think hands in my opinion (laughs) um yeah hands down and um so she's like about to she's having sex with this hot guy and then he just suddenly dies I'm like, that's isn't that true? Aren't we traumatized? (laughs) Like, the focus is a lot more on like the gossipy element as opposed to like, would she be afraid to have sex with anybody else for the rest of her life? Element, which I I understand for their story purposes. Um, But yeah, like that, I would think that that would make her even more hesitant to be around other people, especially a man in a romantic sense. Apparently, this was inspired by a true event as well. So, yes, apparently um, Julian Fellows has spoken on this and he said that there were some journals that were found talking about they had to move a dead body, but they never revealed who in the British high society actually had this encounter. So there may be generational trauma around us in Brooklyn today. Somebody whose grandmama 
had the Pamuk experience and we just don't know and we'll never know. Wow. Wow. What I took away from that scene with Pamuk is my sympathy shifted a little bit toward Mary because in the beginning she's so steely because she's just bratty and spoiled and she's nasty to everyone around her. But then when that happens, you can see that this is maybe her first encounter, maybe her first makeout. Yeah. And it leads directly to sex, directly to death, (laughs) directly to having her entire future really, really put. I mean, in the episode we watched today, because that's that happens um, earlier, but we were watching episode six In episode six. What I found really interesting was the conversation between Mary's mother and grandmother, who's just caught wind of it. So this story has floated to London and come back through servant gossip uh, to, to the, the real grandmother. Pipeline. Exactly. And it was so interesting to see these two older women discuss sort of prioritizing the stakes where the grandmother saying, oh, tell me it's not true. Maggie Smith, first of all, let's have a moment for the real reason so many people watch this show. Is and she's she's shocked, but then the mom really makes the case to say my daughter's life was going to be ruined, and you cannot judge me for helping her to drag a dead body because we know, and I felt like between the lines, it's like we know as women what this would do to the rest of her life, and I I kind of love that sort of proto feminist moment between the two older women saying, yeah, you're right, like let's get her to town and get her married. Yeah, they're they're like, oh, we can't find her anybody in London in June. We'll just take her to Italy. To Paris. The fall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're like, European Italians aren't as care. picky. Yeah. I'm like, is that racist? I don't know. <laughs> where, where are we going? No, but that's that's a really good point. There, Even in that exchange, there was uh, a line um, that jumped out at me that Cora said to Violet, that the mother said to the grandmother, thank you for not turning against her. And I was like, your granddaughter? <laughs> like, But I mean, the social stakes and the economic stakes were super intertwined <laughs> that this was like your stance of the stand right. up for my granddaughter. But to to your point about whether or not the Pamuk situation was consensual, I also found that initial scene with Pamuk burst such a bubble. If you see her as so strong and so aggressive and forward, and then you you realize in a flash that a woman of this era would have been so sheltered. And I think the they did a good job with that. I find the Sybil plot line going off to protest secretly, uh, flirting with the chauffeur, somewhat less realistic because it feels like, would she really have been able to slip away and get into such trouble and, and talk with the the socialist Irishman about things, be, be going off one-on-one all the time to these and getting into scuffles? Is is that realistic? And she felt less vulnerable than Mary. Mm, that's a really good point. That's a really, really good point. It also makes me think about like you bring up both sisters and comparing them to each other. It makes me think about another line that happens between Robert and Cora or an exchange that happens between Robert and Cora when they're in the bed, you know, talking at night and having their pillow talk, I guess, which is always about money. Um, like a lot of people now that I think about it, but they're talking about how Sybil's supposed to be presented to society the following month. And they're worried about how all of her rabble rousing is going to affect that. And then Cora's like, I'm not even worried about Sybil. We need to worry about Mary. She needs to get married because at that point, Cora is like aware of the fact that like the gossip about Mary is like making the rounds. I think one of them realizes they didn't even bring up Edith, who's the middle sister, who is not seen as as becoming um, as the other two sisters. And they just sort of choke like, oh, Edith's going to take care of us when we're old. And like, I'm not going to lie. The first season, especially Edith's personality it's not what we'd call inviting. 
But I do think that like there is also conversation and uh, and also I think that like you can tell through the, the way that the show is produced and directed that like we're not meant to think of Edith as attractive as we think of Mary and Sybil. And it's also kind of devastating how the way that you look could encourage disinvestment in you <laughs> from your family, which in turn doesn't help you either secure your family's fortune or help you to secure a, a stable life for yourself by being married to someone else or marrying into someone else's family. It's kind of like they kind of had given up on Edith. And so, like I said, some of that is her personality. But like you said, Lady Mary's a bitch too. <laughs> She's just thought of as prettier. And thus, I think she gets away with more. And I think that she gets more of her family's energy uh, as far as helping her find a husband. And of course, she's the firstborn. Um, and there's the opportunity for her to marry Matthew. But yeah, I, I find that was something else that kind of struck me. Is it's like, oh, like the way that you looked it counts a lot now, but it was like maybe everything that you had back then. Yeah. If you were a woman in that position. I think you're both kind of raising something for me around just some of the artistic liberties that the show creators took to make these characters likable. Even the idea of the Earl of Grantham caring at all about the servants' lives. Or, you know, to your point, Layla, Sybil actually flirting with the driver being allowed out. Like, I think a lot of that is just kind of to connect our modern sensibilities with some of the so that we can enjoy some of the soapier elements. And, you know, to your point, Brittany, like, I am so happy that I do not have to worry about losing my family's entire estate if I go experiment sexually like that is really a relief to me because um, that takes slut shaming to a whole nother level when your grandmama's involved. Brittany, you're delightful. Um, but before we go to cringe fire, I want to throw like one last just open question to both of you. If you have anything that you want to say about this, I want to hear it. Feminism in the show, because you both just kind of talked about it a little bit. You both just said, you know, there, these are certain ways that women come together or came together when maybe their interests were aligned anyway or their economic interests were aligned. But I'm just curious, like, how you see the show dealing with feminism of the time and whether, like, any of it connects to the feminism that you see going on today. Something that came up for me a couple times in this episode specifically um, that I think kind of speak to her presence on the show I find Sybil to be, I agree, an unrealistic character, but she's one of the most interesting on the show. Well, I don't know if I always even say she's one of the most interesting on the show because she is always kind of like a really nice, pleasant person trying to do something fun or trying to do the right thing. I don't know if that's necessarily interesting. I think maybe Thomas or O'Brien <laughs> are like my actual most interesting characters on the show. They're always questioning and hitting their heads up against like why some people are born into wealth and others are born to serve the wealthy. Yes. And the show kind of punishes them, I think, a lot, even though I'm like, mm. <laughs> they're like Killmonger. I'm like, there's some points in here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> I think that as far as feminism on the show, I think that something that's that is interesting about Sybil as a character is that she does have a class traitor's spirit. Like she doesn't just flirt with Branson and like uh, you know, think that he's, you know, cute and want to steal some kisses or maybe get pregnant by him accidentally or something like that. 
she actually does break away from her family to try to marry him. She actually does like not just say that she cares about women's suffrage, but she like actually goes to the rallies. She is interesting in that like her ideals are not just espoused within the house. She's actually sort of limit like living some feminist ideals like through her relationships with other people and through the choices that she makes personally. So like when I think about like, uh, and I, that's part of the reason why I do think that her character is kind of unrealistic. Going back and watching the first season again and watching this episode specifically again, seeing the uh, the relationship between Lady Sybil and Gwen, who is um, one of the maids who wants to become like a typist or a secretary and like leave Downton um, or at least leave the, leave the house. And like seeing the way that like Sybil actually does like make things happen for Gwen. Like she doesn't just talk the talk. She does eventually kind of walk the walk. Does she completely dismantle her entire family's wealth? No. I think if she had been given a little longer, might she have remains to be seen. I found her character unrealistic and possibly like, like the fact that her actions are actually typically followed all the way through. She doesn't just throw things out there and say, I'm going to run away just to like be rebellious. Um, Her rebellion is actually based in something. And I find that really interesting. But I mean, I don't know, like everything that happens on the show with these women, they're so wealthy that like their personal fortunes are never fully left up to chance, but they always feel that way. Everything in their lives feels much more precarious than it actually is. Um, And I think that it almost makes their worldviews, maybe with the exception of Sybil, too solipsistic for feminism, I think, to even be applied to one of their actions. <laughs> I think they're just also focused on themselves that like, I suppose some of the individual choices they can make sometimes could be seen that way maybe. But I think Sybil might be the only person whose values kind of in at any point in time, her actions are backed up by what she says uh, or her actions actually back up what she says her values are. Yeah, it's true. She She definitely was my favorite when I first watched the season one, when when I first came across Downton Abbey, I I love Sybil. I love anybody. I always go for the political character, and I I love that she's trying to to make a change. And she's so pretty. And uh, I I also I also love the the big reveal of the pants that she gets uh, tailored. <laughs> I love that. Um, shout out to the Persians who invented pants like that. Oh, <laughs> many, many, many centuries before <laughs> this was so bold. But I, I was reading um, a, an article about how realistic Downton Abbey is. And, and one of them was very sarcastically saying that one of her big rebellions was wearing pants to family dinner. And it's like, yeah, but you know, baby steps, it was scandalous for her for her time. I, I'm so glad you brought up Gwen, uh, yes. who went on to uh to Game of Thrones fame, Rose Leslie. Uh, she's she's such a great actor, and and I love that plot line. She's one of the people who is actively trying to ascend in class, whether or not it's... And I love that her path isn't easy. She doesn't get the first job that Sybil sets her up for. She gets a job later. And I like that they show that. I mean, it's it's a soapy, unrealistic show, but they do, they do put barriers in front of people. The other person that, you know, I want to shout out as a feminist is um, Cousin Isabel, Matthew's mom. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. I totally forgot about her. Yes. I do like her. I do like her. This episode six opens with Sybil already 
at the rally that I think she came across when she's picking up her outfit from the mm-hmm. tailor. And and cousin Isabel is there too. Maybe because she lives in town, but maybe because she was actively there. And I can't remember if she says it or someone else shouts it out that if this is a rally about women's rights, they should let a woman speak. But whether or not cousin Isabel says that, she applauds it. Mm-hmm. But then she has this sort of um, sort of first wave feminist practicality about her where <laughs> she's she's like go home you're not going to help anybody if you get trampled here and you're going to get Branson fired and that would be selfish and I loved that reasoning where she's saying to Sybil like there's something selfish about your self-righteousness about being here mm. and and you need to think about him Our friend Marie Rose moved to Alaska in 2016 and to the benefit of us and all cringe watchers, listeners created an incredible shoreline wild salmon company. I cannot tell you how much I have enjoyed the last two boxes I have ordered from shoreline wild salmon. Both times I've selected the best of Alaska box, which is a five pound sampler where you get three different kinds of salmon, halibut and lingcod. I made some incredible halibut steaks last night and uh, cannot wait to defrost the flaked coho salmon to make some great burgers. It is super fresh, comes flash frozen and tastes like it just came out of the sea. It's totally different color, taste and texture than any salmon you've had and uh, go get it. How exactly is there seafood of the highest quality? Well, it's wild caught in the icy waters of Alaska and fished with a hook and line method. That means each salmon is caught, cleaned and filleted one at a time right off the coast of Alaska. Today, Shoreline Wild Salmon ships directly to customers all over the United States. Check them out at shorelinewildsalmon.com and use the code EATWILD10 for 10% off your first order. Brittany, I feel like we've covered a lot here. We do have a cringe fire for you. Are you ready? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm ready. We actually have talked about other shows already, but is there any other show that you're binging right now that you really want to shout out? Yes. Right now I am binging Search Party and Yellow Jackets. Big, big fans. Oh, and also Southside on HBO Max. So good. So good. Yes. I love Yellow Jackets. I was a late adopter, but I've just binged to catch up. Search Party is so embarrassing because it just sees into my millennial soul. I'm like, (laughs) how did you know? why oh they're so good at picking up finding like like the most absurd parts of our culture right now specifically as it pertains to millennials and just turning it into a ridiculous plot line that's like so close it's like a little closer to reality than i think any of us want to admit it is it is quite close to home second cringe fire question is is there something in society that you find super cringy right now i've been noticing on twitter the past couple of days a lot of people uh, who are like solo, um, like they say that they're like in a solo pod, like they're the only person in their pod, meaning like the only person that they see on like a semi-regular basis or the only person that they see on a regular basis during the whole pandemic and how they're going into their third year of being totally alone and uh, or at least alone in that sense. And it's interesting and I think very cringy to me um, that so many people are still invested in like the nuclear family or in a monogamous relationship as like their like the only mode of community or family building um because there's so many people who just don't live that way there's so many people who are unpartnered or don't live 
with their children or have children. This is of all age groups, like 20s through 80s. Um, And there's a lot of people who have been opening up more, I think, as we're getting into the third year of the pandemic about like living with loneliness. Um, But still, there's so many other people (laughs) who think that um, like being in a situation where you're single or living alone or independently is like a negative thing. And, And like maybe those people don't need the same type of community and embrace as, you know, their friends who are coupled or married or whatever. That's something I feel is very cringe right now is this whole nuclear family having a partner and having that be the only way that you connect with other people. Thumbs down, thumbs down. A whole word right there. Could not agree more. Is there an aspect of sex or sexuality that you would like to see portrayed or better portrayed in culture, TV, film, literature, whatever it might be? Something that I think about a lot, especially when it comes to like how sex or sexuality is is portrayed in in media is um, being a survivor of sexual violence is a very common reality for a lot of people. Uh, So common, (laughs) like wildly common. (laughs) Like sometimes, you know, depending on the population or the way that you look at statistics, like one in every three or one in every five people, you know? I think it's one in every three like women and one in every five like just adults or people or just people in general in in the country, just speaking about America. But I imagine that like patriarchy is everywhere. It's similar in in other parts of the world to different degrees. But, you know, it's a really common experience for a lot of people, including myself. And something that I I don't think that I've seen really tackled on it on in a movie or a TV show or maybe books is a little different, but I even struggled with a a romance novel I was recently reading that kind of like glossed over this. But I think I would love to see something that focuses on the reality of what it's like to date or try to negotiate sex with a new partner as you're trying to like heal or as you are sort of reintroducing this part of your past to a new person. Um, I think that a lot of times it's thought of as only depressing or serious or really easy and just something that's solved with like a conversation (laughs) or if you are just like thinking someone is sexy enough. Um, And I think also it leaves out the possibility that like you can disclose that information or get back out there and, and still be rejected by people for being a survivor. And I I don't ever, it's, I know it's something that a lot of people are dealing with in their lives. I know that I dealt with it in my life and it was really hard, but it's never talked about. <laughs> Even when I was watching I May Destroy You, which was amazing. And of course, everyone's experience is different, right? I remember watching that show and I was like, oh, she's, she's having sex again. Like right now, I was like, I was, I didn't know what to expect because obviously everyone's experience is different. I think that what the way that she handled that for that show and however, you know, things have unfolded in her life is obviously her experience. And I'm grateful that she shared it with us. I really enjoyed watching it. Um, and I got a lot out of it. But I was like, oh, this doesn't feel real to me. And I know that there's other people that that doesn't feel quite like rather not real, but like that's not something that I identify with. And so it just makes me feel like we need a lot more stories like that because I feel like I see either someone's like never can think about sex for the rest of their lives or they're like, ah, oh, that was last week. <laughs> Bring on the orgy. <laughs> So I think that that's something that could be handled a lot better. And I'd love to see that be different. Do you have a favorite scene depicting sex or sexuality in film, TV, or literature? Oh, okay. Right now. I have a ton. (laughs) I have so many. But it's in the most surprising place. Right now, 
something I'm really into that I have to, I, can't, I have to say my co-host, Eric, my co-host for Colored Nerds, he got me into the show. It's a part of the Power TV universe, okay? But the series is uh, Power Book 3, colon, Raising Canaan. Um, and the show's title refers to like 50 Cent's character, I think on the original Power series, but it's all about that character's experience growing up. And so you do focus on him as a teen and his friends. The real focus of the show is his mother, whose name is Rock, short for Raquel. She's like a super smart, genius level drug dealer. And she also is super hot. She has this boyfriend named Symphony. I can't remember the name of the actor. Uh, her, The woman who plays Rock is Patina Miller. And the actor who plays Symphony is Toby Sandeman. I think it's the name. The sex scenes that they have on Power Book 3, Raising Canaan, just hear me out. They are some of the best sex scenes I have seen between a black woman and a black man, maybe ever, like on TV or in in the movies, like maybe ever. They're so like, it's really hot. And also like the aftercare is there. What makes her so sexy to him is like her, like who she is as a businesswoman and a mom. <laughs> Essentially, I think that's what a lot of people want. And I don't have kids, but if and when I do have a child, I really think it's going to be important for <laughs> my fiance, my partner to think that I'm sexy because I'm a mom. Just the way that it's shot, like how it's like exciting, but it's really tender and it's really sexy. Um, and I just wasn't expecting it because the, the sex on power, the original series was not necessarily inspired, even if it was spirited. Um, but yeah, I cannot shout out their performances enough, especially Patina Miller. She's really good. But yeah, Power Book Three, Raising Canaan, the sex scenes between, even if you just fast forward, and you just watch them. Oh, also, I watched uh, The Lost Daughter, I think it was, the new movie directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal. Oh my God, Peter Sarsgaard. Oh my God, there's a scene in that movie, or maybe a couple scenes where I'm just like, damn. I don't want to spoil it, but I'm like, I want to, I want to break up my relationship with a scene like that. Like that's worth it. Peter Sarsgaard. Oh my God. I don't know what, it, look, I'm going to tell you something. I know he's acting. Maggie Gyllenhaal directed it. So I'm like, this is your wife. So she knows. And I just want to salute her. Cause like, congratulations. The movie's great. And that's your husband. You're doing good. I did not click on it, but I did see a YouTube clip titled something like Maggie Gyllenhaal wanted to cut a scene or you know that something <laughs> alluding to how hard it must have been to direct that. But I've, I'm an early adopter of Peter Sarsgaard. He also lives in Brooklyn. You can see him just walking around being a sexy dad. Thank you all so much for having me on. This was really fun. I love, I could literally talk about all my favorite sex scenes from TV. Night and day. Yeah. <laughs> Our editor is Karen Y. Chan. Judith Walker created our logos and cover art. DL Dallas Engram created our theme song. Our ad music is by Siddhartha Corsis. You can find DL on SoundCloud and Siddhartha on Bandcamp. And you can support the show by visiting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash cringe watchers. Subscribe today to get cool perks like shout outs on the show. You can also show us your love by rating and reviewing this podcast on any platform on which you listen to it and follow us at Cringe Watchers on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you for cringe watching with us. <laughs> <laughs>